Welcome to the Relaxed Running Podcast, the show that helps runners and athletes in running-based sports transform the way they run. Here's your host, Tyson Popplestone. Ladies and gents, welcome back to the Relaxed Running Podcast. I'm your host, Tyson Popplestone. Now, today on the show, we have first-time guest by the name of Keith Mueller coming at us from Boulder in Colorado. It's a really interesting conversation with Keith. I was first introduced or first heard of his work through recent guest of the podcast, Matt Fox, and through Sweat Elite, the YouTube video series. I was watching Matt get ready for the Berlin Marathon, and part of his preparation when he was in Boulder, Colorado, was developing a strength and conditioning routine specifically to marathon running. Now, what I liked about this particular series was it exposed us to a number of exercises and ideas that just seemed very new from what I'd seen in the strength and conditioning world. And I, I really liked the exploration or explanation, I should say, that Keith gave as to why it was that he was getting Matt to do each specific exercise. I thought they were, they seemed very functional, they seemed very specific. And he just had a really nice way of delivering the messages that he was trying to deliver. So I reached out to him and asked if he'd be willing to come on the show. He was, and uh, as I expected, it was an awesome conversation. We look at strength and conditioning from an amateur point of view or from a sedentary lifestyle point of view. Athletes trying to manage work and family with a training program that includes running and strength. So we look at how we might be able to incorporate something there. We also look at it from a more specific point of view for the elite athletes trying to get a, a, a little advantage over the rest of the competition and even their own body through preventing injury um, and little strains, tears and things like that. So really great conversation. I've linked all of Keith's details in the show description below. So make sure if you enjoy it, you go and check that out. It's also going to be available on YouTube really soon. So if you prefer to watch it, make sure you jump across to Relax Running's YouTube. But for now, enjoy this conversation with myself and Keith Mueller. Yeah, sweet man. I was uh, I was just saying before we hit record that I was introduced or not introduced, but I, I saw your work for the very first time through uh, I'm going to call him a mutual friend of ours, assuming he's not just a client of yours. In in Matt Fox, who has he's been a big topic of conversation on on this podcast over the last few weeks. Because well, first of all, I discovered that he was the man behind Sweat Elite, and second of all, um, he was on here quite recently, and and his interview was really popular, and people seemed fascinated about his journey into the world of marathon running from 800 meter running. But I saw him uh, come in and, and do quite a few sessions with you and it looked like you were trying to get him on the straight and narrow. But um, you're obviously doing strength and conditioning, but I thought as as way of introduction, you might be able to, uh, to give the audience a little bit of an overview of what it is that you're doing in those gyms. Sure. Uh, my name is Keith Mueller. I'm here in uh, Boulder, Colorado, and my project is called Higher Ground Athletics. And I work as a coach that attempts to connect endurance athletes with better training and fill in gaps in their training. And really my ethos is to train everything. So finding the things that are relevant, um, untrained, and perhaps addressing some limitation for, for an athlete and then getting that, that work done to close that gap. And a lot of that work is done in gyms. Yeah. So specifically, you're doing strength and conditioning, or are you actually coaching runners as well with the actual training structure of their, their running week? Most of the athletes here in Boulder that I work for, I'm very much a supplemental coach. So I manage sort of everything that isn't running. And that, that would be the strength stuff, warm-ups, if that's a part of our strategy, homework, things like that. Um, but very few of them do I actually write their, their sports-specific training, swim, bike, run. There are a few people that I do that for, but that's just remotely. 
Yeah, sure. I'm, I know it's a big town, and I'm not sure how well you know the athletes there. And I think I'm telling you he's in this place. But Lee Troop is a former Australian who I think is coaching in Boulder, Colorado. He's got a pretty good group. Do you know? Do you know the name Lee Troop? I don't. No, okay. I thought he might have had a couple of athletes in there with you. To be honest, if Lee, if you're listening, I'm not even 100 percent sure he's in in Boulder. It might just be something. That's all right. And and also to be fair, I'm pretty new to town. Uh, uh, where where have you moved from? From Dayton, Ohio, in in the states. Uh, born and raised there, and went to school in Ohio. And my wife and I moved in May of 21, so we're just about to hit two years here in Colorado. Oh, beautiful. And did you move up there specifically because of the just the nature of the place? Like I know a lot of athletes of all different sports find their way there, whether it's for a, a big block of time or just a period of the year to train. Was was that a strategic move to get up there and, and start work? Definitely. Yeah, yeah. Um, I went to school in Ohio. I got a kinesiology degree. I knew I was interested in coaching. After school, I worked in a running shoe store and made sandwiches in a grocery store. And my real job was uh, coaching high school cross country just as an assistant with my old track coach who I got along with very well. Um, so amid that, I started working in a gym there in Dayton and um, did all sorts of stuff, coach classes, personal training, but worked with an endurance athlete whenever I could get my hands on one. And I, I knew that's what I wanted to do. And all of my time, spare time was spent kind of thinking about how I would go about uh resolving the training for for an endurance athlete with the gym because I've I've always sort of seen that gap and felt that that stuff wasn't as refined as it could be. Um so once I felt like I had a pretty good idea of what I wanted to do, we my wife and I started looking for places to go and a, a contact of mine pointed me towards Boulder. We had just passed through on a road trip uh right before the pandemic hit uh, a year or two before, so I was aware of it and I was of course aware of its re- reputation, but that got us to make the leap. Yeah, yeah, amazing. It's it's really interesting speaking to people in the strength and conditioning world, specifically helping endurance athletes, or, or more specifically helping distance runners. Because uh, I I officially retired from from running back in two thousand and fourteen, and it's still been fairly heavily involved, especially the last couple of years. But even ten years ago, I was I, I feel as though there was a really big blank spot in a lot of elite athletes training programs or, or at least with the elite athletes that I was running with it didn't seem to have the um the focus on it that it now does and and now deserves uh, I, I was just curious to hear your thoughts around that because uh, every distance runner that I speak to now has some form of strength and conditioning as a part of their training for a variety of reasons and I mean you don't even really need to go into the detail of why it's important because I think we, we all understand how important it is to functional movement, how important it is to injury prevention and strength and things like that. But uh, I'm not sure what's happened in the last 10 years which has caused our attention towards the strength and conditioning element of training to to really flourish or grow. Yeah, I think like you, you said, for a variety of reasons, people f- sort of find their way to it, whether it solves an injury problem for them or they're able to recognize that it just makes their body feel better or they're able to get more speed out of themselves, whatever it might be. I think when people get in the gym and do a few things the right way, um, they'll, they'll stay. Um, it, it ends up being pretty indispensable because the gym, that environment is a place where we can just work on addressing the mechanical demands of the sport. So what options you have to move, whether that's things you want to see trickle down into your running form, so to speak, or just your ability to handle the wear and tear of training. And I've just noticed that there's very much like a category of athlete uh, 
that the, their ability to handle the mechanical stress of their training, their, their volume and intensity, that's the thing holding them back. And it's really easy to identify those people because they're the people that get hurt. Every time they try to ramp their mileage up to a certain point or right before that point, they end up with some sort of niggle, whatever it might be, or some full-blown injury or stress fracture or whatever it might be. That's a dead giveaway that what's holding them back in progressing in the sport as far as they want to isn't their fitness. It's their ability to handle that mechanical strain. And the assumption is made that running and your run training is enough to uh, progress that part alongside your aerobic fitness. But if you're getting injured all the time, then clearly there's a mismatch there. So the gym is a place where we can close that gap and sort of isolate the movement part of it away from running. Yeah, it's really interesting to me because I was in that category for quite a long time of just thinking that any of the conditioning that was taking place for me was taking place when I was running. And as an 18-year-old guy, maybe you can get away with that for a little while. And I was relatively lucky with niggles and injuries and, and put a lot of work into running technique when I was competing but one of the things that I've noticed even more recently, and this is actually why I took such great interest in the video you did with Matt, was in preparation for my marathon, which I'm going to be running in October, after a few years away from any real structured training. I mean, I've been running a few times a week. I've been doing a lot of functional movement just for general health, not running specific in the gym. Um I've come back to the sport now. I've put on 10 kilos. Um, I, I, I claim that's muscle. My pecs look better than they <laughs> used to. But uh, one of the things that I've noticed in with some of the more intense sessions that I've been trying to hit is I've been trying to navigate navigate my way through a couple of little calf strains. And it's the first mm-hmm. time where I've actually had to sit down and go, all right, Taz, what's actually going on here? And as a result, I've kind of gone down the rabbit hole and have got a new appreciation for the role that just general strength or in my case, I guess, specific strength to the calves as uh, playing in, in my overall performance. And uh, I say all that just to say that it, it's interesting that you can skim over how essential it is to have some kind of structured program. And uh, how do you sort of respond to that generalized statement of maybe a new athlete coming in and saying, okay, look, I haven't had a great deal of injury in my past. I feel relatively fit. There's um, technically, I think I'm going okay. Um, I, I don't really know much about the strength game but i've heard there's going to be benefits there like what are the main components of a strength routine that you think are beneficial to an to an athlete this episode is brought to you by relax running's training hub the training hub is a members only space where you get access to bite-sized bonus podcasts today keith joins us for a 15-minute conversation about a number of the errors that new athletes make when they're trying to get started on a strength and conditioning program. More than that, you'll get access to guided audio runs, bonus podcasts, all of our training programs, bonus articles, and access to a support crew for discounted rates to help improve your running. It's five bucks US. I've just done the conversion. It's seven dollars sixty Australian. So two cups of coffee. Not even two cups of coffee. Who are we kidding? It's a cup and a half of coffee a month. Uh, if you'd like to join, please check out the link in the description of this episode. Sure. I think the first layer is providing movement variety. And you, you said something really important that I think everybody should pay attention to, which is when you were 18 years old, you got away with just running, right? You could You could manage it. If our training age is low and we are closer to a time in our lives when we are doing a lot of things, that variety 
uh, stood for itself and, and kept you, I don't want to say healthy, but it kept you a little more resilient over time. But as you specialize more and more, I, I, I tend to find that people get their first major roadblock injury after they've been really focusing on running for about three years kind of junior year in high school for some of them. And as adults, once you really focus on it for about three years, you tend to hit, hit something unless, unless you're having a more expanded view, like, like we're talking about and doing, doing things in the gym and getting that variety because it takes some time for focusing on this one specific thing to sort of constrain the, the way that your body moves or constrain the capacities that some of your tissues have. And I think it's very similar in the world of nutrition where, um, nutrition deficiencies take a long time to show up, right? They're especially like fat soluble vitamins type of stuff. Um, a fat soluble vitamin is stored in fat tissue. So it's going to take a while for you to really run low enough to have a problem. And you can convince yourself that you're doing fine, even if those stores are getting depleted little by little. Um, so there's that idea of making sure that we have all of the pieces of our movement diet that can keep you at least maintaining all the, all the movement options you need. People will use the term mobility. I prefer movement options, making sure that that stuff stays the same rather than getting constrained over time by the fact that all you do is run. And I was in that boat when I was in high school, when I was a running cross country and track, I ran, I walked, I sat down and I laid down and that was mm. it. Right. And so that it turns out that your hip needs more than that in order for it to remain a hip and to have all the degrees of freedom that a hip requires to be healthy and, and uh, really receiving the signal of running and adapting to it. So I really think the first layer is movement variety. And even if you don't see any serious trickle down into your running, it I take a lot of confidence in the fact that it's just keeping you a human first rather than the baseline of your identity just being a runner. Because that, that can have some consequences. Uh, anytime humans specialize in something and don't don't get that that general base that specialization rests on then then you may have some consequences for that down the line so movement variety is definitely the first first piece of it the second piece of it is thinking about um where endurance fits in the in the category of of everything that we we can do with our body and um endurance implies this idea of submaximal effort sustained for a while right? How long a while is depends on how intense the effort is. It could be an endurance effort, even if it's pretty short, 10 minutes or less, or it could be, you know, a hundred miles, right? And that's, uh, you know, 24, 40, 40 hours or, or much longer. But endurance implies submaximal, which means that it has to have a relationship to maximal. And everyone does testing to try to get some sense of what's my best mile or my best 5k, some benchmark that I can draw percentages of to figure out paces. Um, from, from that maximal. And I think that it's really important for any athlete, even if you're an endurance athlete and everything is submaximal, to experience maximal. So having exposure to a maximal voluntary contraction, whether that's with our entire body in something like a deadlift or an overcoming isometric, or just joint by joint, uh, muscle by muscle, whatever it might be. And then we can even think about long muscle lengths, shortened muscle lengths, whatever, whatever that might be. But exposure to a maximum, is really helpful in setting that ceiling for the nervous system. So those are like the two big things that we tend to expose people to. Everything else is sort of case by case, figuring out what you what they might need in, in particular based on assessment. Yeah, yeah, sure. I was thinking maybe we could start a, a little broad and, and then as we 
go through the conversation, get a little more specific? Because from what I can tell, a lot of the athletes that are listening to here, I can't remember if I was recording when I told you this, but I was saying that a lot of athletes who listen to the podcast have maybe been in it for less than four or five years in in the sport of distance running. And from what I can tell, a lot of people are managing their running with a full-time role a full-time working role, uh, you know, they're involved in the mm. corporate world, they've got a job somewhere. And as a result, despite the fact these stand-up desks are becoming more and more popular, you know, that sedentary factor, that sitting nature of what a job is, is still really, um, I, I guess it's quite popular. It's just the way that a lot of things are done. And when you're trying to incorporate a little more functional movement or a, a little more, I can't remember the, the term you gave to it, for, rather than mobility, Sure. You know, addressing somebody's movement options. Yes. Yeah. People feel limited in terms of what they're able to do throughout the day because they're like, all right, well, this is where I work. This is my seat. Sure. I can stand up. I can go get a drink, but there's not a whole heap of movement really taking place through the hips, especially throughout something like that. So I was always interested to start broad with these athletes in mind and trying to navigate. Okay. Well, if we're speaking about movement options for someone like that, where can a person like this start? Because um, obviously, ideally, getting something more personal, more individualized would, would be the, the A game. But just as a couple of general movement cues for, throughout the day, is there anything that you sort of recommend to a person like that just to get the ball rolling and start to introduce a few more movement options into their day-to-day life? Sure. I mean, if we're just talking about it, we can just say, you know, explore, find ways to move more, move your neck around in a circle, move your shoulders around in a circle, kind of trying to move your spine all over the place, tilt your pelvis out forward. People might be familiar with this idea of anterior pelvic tilt. Lots of people suspect that's a problem for them in their running. Tilt it back the other way. Standing up, you can hike one hip, hike the other hip up and down and think about that. That already is a a huge thing to just get some of that variety. But it if we want to take it a level deeper, I there are a lot of ways to classify this stuff, and you can try to address warming up and getting movement variety via play or tasks or things like that. I have uh, put my eggs in this basket of a, a system called FRC, Functional Range Conditioning, and anybody can go get certified in it, but it taught me um, so vo- some vocabulary around training for articular health and thinking about getting a joint moving through its entire workspace would be the term. Um, so cars are a movement within that system, controlled articular rotations, where the effort is to take a joint and move it through, move it through its fullest range of motion on its own without any uh, domino effect of other joints being involved. So it's a it's an attempt at isolation. And I think it's really useful for helping somebody get to know how to shoulder their shoulder or neck their neck or spine their spine, where we're thinking of the tissue as a noun, but moving it through its full range of motion, spining my spine is more of a verb, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I have a cars routine on my YouTube for higher ground athletics, kind of running you through those movements. There's a lot of detail to them, but they don't have to be perfect to give you a lot of benefit. The reason that I like them, um, they're, they're a great uh, system for me and they've refined my thinking of how to, how to think about joints. But then for anybody else, especially a busy athlete, they're very time efficient because if you think about our lives, we've engineered movement out of our lives. We've got the backup camera in the car all that stuff. It's really hard to get that movement variety. So it's not convenient to plug it back in 
if your sport also doesn't contain a lot of variety, if you're a swim, bike, run type of person, it's very cyclical, the same thing over and over again. So plugging that variety in is not convenient, but I think those cars movements are as convenient as it can get because you get exactly what you're looking for, which is sort of, if you think about the hip as a ball and socket joint, I'm taking the head of the femur and moving it everywhere within the acetabulum of the hip that it can go. And I really like the term carving. You're carving out the workspace of the joint. And I mean that in a good way as in it feels really good to do. Sort of uh, brushing and flossing your teeth for your hip. Yeah, it might be. That's, a, that's a great way to put it. Actually, one of my favorite stretches is to, I don't know the name of it, but you lay on your back and you bring your knee towards your chest and you kind of rotate in clockwise and then anti-clockwise direction your knee. And I, I really understand like carving is a great way for it because you can see it's just carving that space out through that little ball and socket up there in the in the hip. One of the things that's, I guess, a little daunting to, to me as well as to, I imagine, a lot of other athletes is when you start talking about this functional movement, there, there seems to be a lot of elements that go into a good strength and conditioning routine. So obviously um, making sure that the joints and everything are being moved as they were created to. But then also uh, I've learned recently about just the benefits of strength and conditioning on sort of bone health, especially as you start to get a little bit older. But then even beyond that, I think the one that a lot of us think of when we're thinking about a strength routine is is the strength of the muscles or muscle size or muscle power. Um, and it can be a little bit difficult trying to navigate how to structure that in and around an already busy work week, family life, um, training schedule with running a lot of athletes might be struggling just to try and find the time to go out and do the main part of their sport which is the run itself so um, on a practical level for for someone who does fit into the category that we described earlier like they're, a, they're you know it might be a family man have got their job got their running and then it's like I've got not really much more time to commit to this sport which is a hobby for me how do you recommend a person like that actually start implementing this and what are the key components so in a session are we focusing on all three elements sort of that that carving out the joints the strengthening um just as a i mean it's a long-winded question i think if i boiled that down what i'm trying yeah you you understand what i'm asking so three if you said three elements you're talking about like the articular stuff getting Mm -hmm. joint range of motion the second thing would be loading up the skeleton right Mm -hmm. for bones was that your second uh factor and then the next was like contractile strength yes Sure. Um, well, the if you use external load, which most of us will use external load as a way to practice getting stronger, it's not the only way. It's possible to um, contract very hard and do an immovable object like the floor, something like that. Um, would be sort of a poor man's way to get to get stronger, especially in certain positions. It can be very useful. But if we're using external load, then the contractile strength piece of it and the skeletal loading they come hand in hand. They're going to come together because the force you're outputting into the world is coming back to you. It's just the way physics works. Um, The, in in general, the heavier you're doing a movement, the more constrained the range of motion is. And this is why if somebody is doing just regular old lunges, just touching to the floor, regular old push-ups where your chest gets to the floor, but you can't go lower than the floor, or um, even mid-range movements like a deadlift or a squat, depending on their depth of the squat, they're really training through the mid-range. So the muscles involved often won't experience tension at a very shortened uh, position or a very lengthened position like a stretch. And that's what's so important to give somebody access to. Um, 
it, just for the the general health of the tissue. We really that that tie that brings the strength piece and the movement variety piece together is making sure that a muscle gets um, tension all the way through its entire length curve. If that makes sense, Tyson. Yeah. Um, so those things are are those go hand in hand, especially if we can think about the range of motion that we're performing an exercise through. So in general, quite heavy things will be pretty small ranges of motion and you're focused on just getting the output. And then lighter movements can be more focused on trying to explore the edges of, of where you can move. If you can imagine like a Cossack squat or a very deep split squat or doing a push-up with your hands up on plates so that you're able to go lower than the floor and actually get a stretch in the chest and the front of the shoulder, all that's very useful as well. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, no, it does. Maybe it does. No, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm really interested because I recently spoke to Emily Durgan. I don't know if you know the name, 67 minute uh, half marathon runner from, I think she's, yeah, she's based in Flagstaff. And what she okay. was saying, she had a really interesting approach to her strength and conditioning routine, which I hadn't heard before. She said that rather than going into a gym three times a week and maybe doing a 90 minute session or a two hour session, she likes to do 20 minutes of quite functional movement she called it before she goes out might be some activation as well as uh, I guess uh, to steal your term that that carving out the joints before mm-hmm. she goes out just as a way of warming up and she says she'll do 20 minutes before and after her runs most days of the week and for her that just works better as a way of implementing it rather than trying to find another couple of hour block to go to the gym and do a specific session and I, I thought to me that made a lot of sense because Practically, it makes sense that you're, you're doing something like that each day. Um, but practically with time as well, it just seems more efficient. But the approach that I hear most of speaking to elite athletes and coaches on here is that a lot of athletes take the other route, which is trying to load up a particular part of their week with maybe a 60 to 90 minute strength and conditioning routine a couple of days a week. I'm not sure if there's one that you think is more beneficial or one that you think we should focus on developing first and I, I, I just wanted to hear a few of your thoughts on on that is there a sort of uh, a prime approach that we know about sure uh, my athletes do both um you know if you were to ask me about the the scheduling for it i would really encourage most people to do something every day whether it's the movement variety piece of it whether it's doing some isometric holds something that's getting you mixing in uh the uh, training the mechanical stuff along with your uh, aerobic fitness stuff, which most people, if they're runners, are, are doing by running. Certainly, there's some cross training mixed in there too for some. So you want to spread that out throughout the week. But some of the the more intense stuff that needs to be done in the gym, or you're trying to do very stimulating work, then that requires carving out some time to do it and thinking about where it's placed. Oftentimes, that will be a few hours after, later after your uh, kind of hardest quality run sessions of the week. That seems to be the best place, but we say whenever is better than never. So it ends up being both. My athletes will have kind of 10 to 15 minute warm up homework type of work to do on a daily basis, but then they'll also have one, usually two uh, actual really stimulating strength efforts a week. Yeah, that's really interesting. So uh, a lot of your athletes do the really heavy, intense lifting part of their training a few hours after their more intense sessions of running. Yeah, I think a lot of the runners, that's the way it works. For the triathletes that are much higher volume, like I've got a pro long course triathlete that's doing 25, 30-hour weeks, um, for him, it's just going to have to fit in where it fits. Mm-hmm. Um, he's never never going to be neurologically fresh, even if we wanted him to. 
Sure. This is a really interesting thing that I spoke about with Emily as well, because I'm always surprised to hear it, how much of a range uh, there is in the approach to the strength and conditioning part of distance running's training program. I, I speak to some athletes and they like to do the really heavy lifting, as you say, a couple of hours after the more intense running sessions and just block out that day is like, okay, this is a hard day. I'm going to do the hard work today. And then the next day mm-hmm. is going to be easy where they might not do something which is so intense. Uh, whereas a lot of other athletes, and I fit more into this category, when I did start to develop some form of strength and conditioning routine, I like the idea of going, okay, I'm going to run really hard today, and then I'm going to rest in the afternoon, and then tomorrow I'll have an easy run, but I'll also include like a more intense strength and conditioning session. And I can't actually explain to you what it is that I enjoyed about that. I think psychologically, I just like the idea that I was spreading out a little bit of that pain over a bit bit longer period of time, rather than just going, all right, it's Tuesday, this is going to be devastating. Um but yeah. uh, your approach ideally would be to do the strength and conditioning on the same day as a couple of hours after your more intense workouts. Yeah, I think the the athletes that I'm that were really putting a lot of thought into this with that I that I work with are you know pros and have a lot at stake. So we try to find the the best thing, and the reason that they need to find the best thing and need to find places to have easy days and have rest is because their volume is so high and they've earned that volume by nature of being, being very fit, being very fast and having a long training history. But the, the less training you're doing, the overall volume, the more you can get away with really spreading it out evenly and not necessarily having that um, polarization. Mm. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So, so when a newer athlete, like w- w- if we could use Matt Fox as an example, just because he's the one that I think a lot of my audience is familiar with and I've seen the video, so it makes more sense for me. So when a bloke like Matt Fox for uh, the audience who haven't yet seen the video, I'll link it in the description on YouTube and in, um, in the podcast, but where do you start that conversation? So he's come in, he says, all right, I'm trying to break 220 for a marathon. Um, This is my situation. I've been struggling with cramps, looking for some added advantage over the course of the event. Mm -hmm. Where does the conversation go from there and, and, and what's sort of the checklist to navigate what it is that needs to be uh, targeted or pro, uh, focused on? Well, Matt did come in for a very specific issue in that he was uh, struggling with cramps late late in the marathon. And just through conversation, we had, you know, I have a different context of thinking about this stuff than he did. And we came up together with the, the kind of hunch that, you know, if he hadn't been doing any uh, contracting maximally and hadn't been doing a lot of sort of sprint stuff, which are both very neurologically taxing the, the heavier work in the gym and contracting hard. And then the, the sprinting, um, then that could mean that over time, his sort of neurological ceiling had gotten low enough where he's starting from a low enough spot that the fatigue that's inevitable across a marathon got below some critical threshold where now the wires aren't firing quite the way they should. And that's, that's the way we kind of see cramps, whether it is exacerbated by um, dehydration or fatigue, it's a sort of neurological confusion. The, your movement stops becoming as refined as you want it to be. And if it's not refined, then it's much less economical, right? So um, we just had that theory that let's give you exposure to this stuff. And when, when there was a camera in the gym with us, we did some things other than that because we tried to make a, as well-rounded of a uh, program as we could within the 11 weeks that I had to try to make a, make a difference for him before Berlin. And it was just centered around one to two exposures a week of getting in and contracting hard. And the movements that we picked were a, 
isometric push. If you think about like the classic downstep picture of somebody running, uh, sort of mid stance, where you're sunk into the knee a little bit, you're sunk into the ankle a little bit, but the torso is of course very upright. Getting somebody into that position, wedged under an immovable object, a bar, and then getting them to drive vertically up into the bar using quads or calves uh, as as hard as they can is an excellent kind of overcoming isometric that lets us get a really hard contraction there. So that was one of our big movements. And then uh, the deadlift was another more of a whole body thing. And then we also had a, a bunch of movement variety and a bunch of um, random wouldn't be the word, but just not that directed strength going on to just try to make a, a difference there too. Yeah. Um, but that- we just arrived at that by, by uh, making a hunch about what we thought was going on and then just sticking to it. Yeah, that, there were the two exercises which really stood out to me. In fact, I went down to the gym and um, without much technical guidance, I, I copied that, uh, that, I don't know the name of it, but we had the bar across the shoulders and which uh, symbolized that downward movement. I thought that was a really interesting and um, from a bloke who doesn't have a great education apart from just having the chance to speak to people like yourself in the strength and conditioning world, on a practical level, that made so much sense to me because that is such a clear uh weakness point for so many athletes i can imagine that so much energy and um so much power is lost during that particular movement that it it surprised me that i i hadn't seen it before that just could be because i'm not as exposed into the strength and conditioning scene as as maybe some people like yourself are but is that a common strength routine it looked very specific like i'll i'll go to the gym and I'll see a lot of, you know, your, your squats and your deadlifts and your bench press and those very well-known movements. But those isolated, more specific exercises like that, I'd, I'd never seen before. Yeah, and um, maybe 18 months ago, I was in the same boat, but I came across um, work by a coach named Alex Natera, N-A-T-E-R-A, who was um, putting out a, a course on run-specific isometrics um, which a lot of the work and research that he had done and, and been published about was um, focused on field sport athletes, um, you know, sprinting and, and um, agility and things like that, especially rugby. So that that course had had some work on that, and the the stuff made perfect sense to me right away. And I think when I do my job well, I really pay attention to those like intellectual light bulb moments. So I'm messed with the movements myself gave them to some athletes that I trusted to try. And we all felt that, Hey, this feels really good. And, um, talking through how it correlates to running, you know, obviously running is all about forward momentum. You're not trying to go up. In fact, you don't want very much vertical oscillation at all. That's quite a waste of energy, but that doesn't change the fact that a lot of the force that you need to overcome in the run stride is vertical, right? It is driving you down. And if we see somebody fatigue, um, deeper and deeper into a race where their ground contact time time gets longer and longer. They're spending more time in that snapshot position of mid-stance because they're sinking into it more and more, right? So if we can be stiffer, if we can generate um, a really strong contraction that has us, um, for lack of a better term, bouncing out of that position into the propulsive phase of our stride, if we can hold that posture for longer and longer into a race, then that's going to be faster and faster later on in it. So it seems like that position of mid stance is actually where the real strength demand of running comes. It's where the forces are the highest because you've, you have to be very isometrically strong to transition from the lengthening, yielding, sinking in 
to ground contact time and then converting to the shortening propulsive phase of you know driving yourself forward so it's if we think of it like a v it's the very bottom tip of that mm. v where you have to be very very strong in order to do, to do that and we know that you know depending on your pace running can be upwards of 3 to 7 times your body weight in terms of forces that are going into your skeleton so the the strength demand is quite high to run fast and it's highest at that moment so contracting hard there made a ton of sense to me immediately yeah the the other thing i was really impressed with 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 foxy was the fact that and granted he's not your stereotypical marathon runner he's not a little weasel body no offense to all my marathon no, listeners yeah. out there he's got a little bit of size on him like he um it, you look at him and his muscular structure you got, he looks like the kind of guy that if he got focused in the gym on putting on weight and actually building size he, he wouldn't have too much trouble and I was really impressed with his deadlift. I think, I, I don't know if you guys spoke about it in pounds, but I think I did the conversion and it was around 130 kilos. It might have been slightly more than that, which seemed like a I lot think of... We, I think we clocked him at just under double his body weight. And I, I can't remember what his body weight was, somewhere in the 70s in terms of kilos. Um, yeah, I, th- so I think he, was, he actually he right told me. So that's, yeah, I that's think definitely where we're talking about somebody not being weak. Yeah. Um, strength standards and the idea of strong enough for something like running is a, a pretty tough thing to to describe but i would definitely say if somebody can deadlift double their body weight w- once then they're, they're not weak they can they can certainly get stronger but at, at that point you start to be in a scenario where you want to work on maybe the repeatability of that rather than driving up the one rep so maybe we'd um, let's just make it a round number and say it was 100 kilos i know it was much more than that but if 100 kilos was his uh, one rep max, then maybe we'd try to build the repeatability where he can pick up 85 to 90 kilos on only a minute rest many, many times over and over again. So really repeat that. Um, any further, you might find that driving up your one rep max beyond a double body weight uh, rep might take more work than is worth it. It might impose too much recovery demand and start to interfere with your run-specific training. And that's part of the way that the rules seem to be different for endurance athletes. We, we use the same tools and we use them the same way, but the rules about what you can get away with and how much work you can do in a week and what you can expect in terms of progression are different when you're doing a lot of hours of exercise outside the gym versus somebody that's making their gym their primary training. Yeah. So when he came to you, he was in the midway stages, or or he had 11 weeks, I think he said, until the Berlin Marathon. So 11 weeks, he's obviously in the peak of his training, pretty much, or thereabouts, Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of running. So for a guy like him, how many times a week was he coming into the gym for the, the actual real heavy lifting side of things? Like I know we've spoken about the different variables that go into sort of a functional moving body, or um, but but for a guy like that. Is he doing those maximum deadlifts once or twice a week, or is that every other week? How do you decide um, the intensity of a gym session around the intensity of running? Sure. So we met uh, once or twice a week. It sort of tapered towards once as he started to get a get a half marathon in and really really ramp up towards the end of his training, and then that second day was on his own. Um, but uh, we would split up we, you know our two main strategies for a really hard contraction one was a, a deadlift trying to accumulate reps at above 80 percent and we would just kind of work heavier and heavier each week as his comfort was there and then um the that iso push once he learned that to do on his own that was his second one so we ended up having 
that that split up. And a couple times he came in right after a long run, um, just an hour or so after his longest run of the week on a Sunday, which, you know, the idea there was when you are neurologically tired to ask for some pretty hard contractions. And oftentimes that wasn't either of those two movements. It was some, some different stuff, a simple leg extension, or um, have you ever seen like a flywheel sort of trainer? There's, there's these different brands where you're hooked up to a belt and the, you're doing sort of a, a quarter squat or a split stance kind of movement where you're driving up and that will spin the flywheel, but it's called ISO inertial resistance in that as soon as you run out of ribbon, it will instantly flip. So the flywheel starts spinning the other way and it will pull you down hard. So it tends to accentuate the centric phase or usually the down of a movement there. It's a really potent thing and really, really tough on your body, but use the right way in a training phase. It seems like it can be really useful for runners. Yeah. I haven't seen those before. I haven't said, so we so, did a little bit of work with that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so with a session like that, how long are you guys together in, in the average session there? Usually about an hour. If I'm, if I'm new with someone, we'll spend longer just because we need to do at least the way I coach, we need to do a lot of talking and uh, kind of going over things and really taking our time to make sure we don't skip steps, but usually about an hour. And once somebody's really humming along and we spend a couple months together, then it could be shorter. Yeah. So you're focusing there really on the, uh, the technical elements at the start, just to try and make sure that the, the process of the movement that they're doing are actually not going to cause injury through them being a little bit out of whack. And then once they've got the confidence there, they can work at it a bit more themselves. Yeah. Sometimes it's a, a safety thing. If we're talking about a deadlift, then, you know, you want to organize yourself pretty well. And then other times I think, you know, talking about the way the rules are different for, for endurance athletes, um, like a walking lunge is a really good example. And maybe I should, I should put a caveat on this, that if you are a time crunched athlete, getting into the gym and doing anything is going to be better than nothing. And it's probably going to stave off a lot of the really silly running injuries like, um, IT band syndrome and things like that. Those are such low bars that if you're doing anything, you're going to be fine. Um, as long as you're experiencing some tension and some time under tension and using the gym to do more work across your training cycle, it's going to be beneficial to you. But for the people that have less, um, what we can call adaptation currency, because they're spending so much of it out on the road in the gym, we have to be precise and pick our battles. So there are movements that I'm not a, a huge fan of, like a, you know, a barbell squat tends to be pretty imprecise. It can get you stronger for sure, but it's not specific enough. Um, and then other movements like a walking lunge tends to really beat the legs up and, and distribute that loading really evenly across the front and back of the leg. If you think about like glutes, hamstrings, and quads, uh, you get a hit on everything. Whereas for our work in our, in the gym, we tend to like to pick an area and then just hammer that and leave everything else alone. Hmm. And then next time in the gym, hammer something else and leave everything else alone. Um, just so we're not dealing with just four out of 10 soreness constantly. And just that, that dead legs, right? We just sort of pick our battles in that way. So that's, that's what I'm really trying to teach somebody is how do we bias a, a split squat towards quads versus biasing a split squat towards glutes and hamstrings? And that depends on the angles that you set up with and then what you do with your torso, all sorts of different things. Um, so yeah. that, that's where a lot of that detail comes in. And once we speak that language together, then they can usually do that pretty well unsupervised. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, actually. So when you say that you target a specific area of the body, uh, 
in one particular session, how are you breaking up the, the body into pieces? Is that kind of the legs as a whole? Or will you say, okay, we'll focus on calves and then we'll focus on hamstrings, then we'll focus on quads? Or is it sort of like, all right, one session we'll do legs, the next session we'll do torso, the next session we'll, you know, work on back? I mean, every day is definitely leg day. Yeah. Um, we we certainly get the the rest of it. The I'm I'm not a real big believer in the uh, really centralizing like core for runners. I think the like the core demand is actually the, the core strength demand for running is actually quite low, and it really only is about keeping the pelvis um, level and not letting it dump forward or tuck too far underneath you. And that's done by very deep musculature and all the surface stuff should be pretty relaxed. And I think the way that a lot of people do core is focused on fancy planks and turning themselves into the tin man and getting really good at bracing when that's not what happens in running. There's lots of motion through the spine and ribs and shoulders as you run. So we tend to just get that stuff moving. If, if somebody is a little bit rigid and restricted, then uh, our focus will be that in the gym. But for most people, once they get themselves pretty supple and unrestricted, then we can just do a pretty minimal amount of that that core work. And it's only focused on a few small things. Um, and then for the upper body, almost nothing unless somebody really feels like it's uh, something that they need, but uh, it just gets thrown in there little, little by little. Um, but we don't want to add too much superfluous stuff. And I think there's plenty of room to disagree with, with what I'm saying, but I, I find that my bias is to uh, actually do very little from the, from the waist up, except just check a few boxes, make sure their shoulder works like a shoulder, make sure their shoulder blades move all over the place, do some basic pushing and pulling, and then get that torso moving in a lot of different ways. We do actually do a lot of work for ribs though, to, to focus on being able to actually drive full inhales and exhales. That's actually we spend a disproportionate amount of time on that if it seems like somebody needs it. Yeah, I'm always I'm always confused by the the upper body work for distance runners. I've heard some distance runners explain why they do use it, but as a fairly experienced distance runner myself, I've never got to the end of a race and thought I like I wish my triceps were stronger or I wish my biceps were stronger. Just in terms sure. of arm arm swing and things like that, I, I never felt as though it benefited much from a really specifically focused gym session there. One thing I like to include it for is purely for vanity reasons. So when I'm out running, my biceps look better. (laughs) But as you say, it's that superfluous uh, kind of stuff. When you're speaking about the the ribs, like what does a workout for the ribs look like? Because that's an approach that, again, makes a lot of sense when you describe it. But when I think about trying to work out a rib cage or uh, the ribs in general, it, it seems like a difficult thing to train. Sure, yeah. Um, thinking about, you know, I mentioned kind of these cars movement, controlled articular rotations where we're trying to move a joint through its fullest range of motion. Breathing all the way in and all the way out expansively and compressively is cars for the ribs, right? So if we think about that thoracic cavity that the, the ribs create, we know that the lungs are not muscles, right? They're these passive balloons that fill with air based on a pressure differential between the inside of the lungs, the outside of the lungs in the thoracic cavity that they inhabit, and then the external environment. So if that cavity expands at all and the volume gets bigger, it will draw air into the lungs. And if it gets uh, smaller, it will create pressure to drive air out. Most of that volume change doesn't come from the rib cage. It comes from the respiratory diaphragm, right? So we think of this muscle that is under the, the lungs and over your guts and sort of bowstrings and creates this sort of tent. 
and it's domed up when it's relaxed. And when you inhale, it's going to contract to flatten and then descend. And that creates a huge volume change for the lungs to expand into. Mm. People get really up in arms about diaphragmatic breathing. And a lot of people will you know, try to work on this. And the good news for them is that all breathing is reflexively diaphragmatic. You don't need to worry about it. That's always going to be involved. The real question is what happens next. Or actually, the real question is, does your breath start with the diaphragm? And then what happens after that? So there is a class of people, usually athletes aren't them. They're usually pretty sedentary people that their breathing strategy is to use the muscles of the neck and the chest to pick the rib cage up and put it down. So that's the opposite of the diaphragm descending and the rib cage expanding there. They're using something else. And those people tend to have a cluster of other sort of consequences for that by breathing in a, um, I don't want to say the wrong way because it's important for you to have options to get air in to stay alive, but it's not plan A, mm. right? So thinking about the ribs, we are looking for the ribs to look like, move like bucket handles. They internally and externally rotate, which gets them to drive apart like fingertips and come back together. And the more range of motion you have there, whether it's at the joints of the rib cage to be able to expand and compress, but also expanding into the resistance of the chest wall and the, the muscles of the torso, if they can't, don't have the flexibility to expand, then your breathing volume is gonna be cut, cut mm. short. And you can imagine why it would be important to breathe fully if you're a breathing athlete, like a runner or a cyclist or a triathlete. Yeah, 100%. So to answer your question, we put people in positions and ask them to breathe fully. Not quickly, but breathe all the way in and expand in all directions and then drive a full inhale and sort of think about pulling your ribs into your body and shrink wrapping your torso. And there's a lot of muscular work that happens there. But it's not so much about getting stronger as it is about um, driving volume change and just getting that, that range of motion to be instantly accessible and remain accessible at faster and faster paces. Yeah, that makes so much sense. But man, I'm going to let you go because that's been right on an hour. We said it would take an hour. Um, uh, really, really insightful, really helpful. Um, I find um, the way you present the information fantastic, but also what it is that you're actually teaching, I, I think is um, not to overstate it, it seems revolutionary from my perspective because that uh, that specific approach that you have, especially to runners, is um, I don't know. It just it makes a lot of sense. So I appreciate uh, I appreciate the education. I appreciate the work. And uh, yeah, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, you're welcome. It was my pleasure. I uh, anytime I talk through my ethos with training, it helps me understand it better. So I appreciate the chance to do that. Thanks for listening to the Relaxed Running Podcast. If you're ready to become a faster, more efficient runner, visit www.relaxedrunning.com.